Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and la glace est sain pour vous. Oh, man. <laughs> Jason's going to mangle some French. Well, I know you are uh, uh, an avid speaker of it, Josh, so you can always correct me. Ah, no, it's more amusing if I don't. <laughs> Was mm-hmm. I close? Eh. Sure. Why not? I, 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 you, you overrate my French speaking abilities here. I haven't uh, spoken French since uh, the end of high school. Well, so. you know what I said, though. I'm guessing based on the film, based on context clues. Yes, yeah. I do. And uh, the film is not French, but uh, does feature a French speaking character who says uh, something about la glace. Ice cream is healthy for you now. Because he's Dracula, apparently. <laughs> Ice cream in the cinema paradiso. Well, oh, there we I'm go. I'm confused. I'm confused. It's a big circle here. Yeah. yeah. So what? what is this confusing movie? It is Jim Jarmusch's Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai from 1999. Because uh, this season of Awesome Movie Year is all about looking back at all of the years we've covered in our previous seasons. And 1999 was our most recent season. But we are revisiting it here now with another future cult classic pick. And I feel like Jim Jarmusch is a filmmaker where literally every single movie of his could be a future cult classic pick. That's just kind of his thing. I don't know if there's any other filmmaker you could say that about. That's kind of wonderful. Maybe like Jodorowsky or something like that, you know? Yeah, maybe maybe someone like that or John Waters. Right. Um, uh, I take it back. You're right, Josh. (laughs) It's still a small number. It's a unique position to occupy that Jim Jarmusch has. But of all his films, this might be the cultiest. I don't know. We'll have to we'll have to talk about that. Certainly but, the dopest, the illest. <laughs> I found it to be the thrillest. Thank you. Jason is going to mangle French <laughs> and attempt to rap in this episode. I, it's really going to be awesome. I'm really feeling <laughs> ghost dog like. So, you know, what can I do? Well, I hope you don't murder me then if you're feeling like Ghost Dog. Well, you would, if I was going to do it, you wouldn't know. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's true. You would be stealthy and I would be gone before I even realized it. Uh, Forrest Whitaker, of course, stars as Ghost Dog, the assassin who lives by the code of the samurai as he works for some low rent mobsters. And uh, he, he shoots people, though. He doesn't, he has a scene where he's like practicing with a sword. But he never uses the sword to kill anyone, I don't think. It's the way of the samurai, Josh Bushido. I don't know. But I do really like the kind of sequence against the hip hop where like he is kind of working on the skills on the roof, you know, and everything with the sword and just kind of practicing his uh, moveset there. Yeah, yeah. He's got quite quite the moves there. Um, so this film, um, we're calling it a cult classic, but a lot of times with the cult classics is movies that were, uh, failures at first and then built up over time. But for a a relatively small indie film, this movie was pretty successful when it was initially released. It grossed $9.4 million, uh, on its $2 million budget. So that's a good return for a small independent film. I premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in 1999 And I feel like not surprisingly was a bigger thing in Europe. Uh, It was not only at Cannes, but also released 
uh, all across Europe in 1999 before it managed to get to the U.S. later in 2000. Uh, and it was nominated for the Best Foreign Film Award at the César Awards in France. Which it lost to all about my mother. A worthy opponent there. And of course, the Palme d'Or that year, Josh. Was Rosetta, which we talked yeah. about in our, uh, in our episode. The feel-good film of 1999, Rosetta. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. Hey, is a quality <laughs> film. Um, what if it was Rosetta versus Ghost Dog? <laughs> Nobody wins then, Josh. Nobody mm-hmm. wins. You could eat some waffles. Um, yes. Ghost Dog also nominated in the U.S. for Best Feature at the Independent Spirit Awards. Which was won by Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, another fine film. Josh also nominated for the Grand Prix of the Belgian Syndicate of Cinema Critics. That was won by Thomas Vindberg's The Celebration. So it's lost to some good movies. Yeah, I mean, as we said throughout our season on 1999, what what a year. What a year. So some amazing films Josh. this year. I see yeah. a future in advertising for you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so critics also mostly were were fans of this film. Uh, I was looking to see if there was a, an Ebert at the movies review of this, which I couldn't find. But Ebert, uh, this is amazing. Even in 1999, what what uh, Ebert was able to do on television, there is like half of an entire episode of the Ebert at the Movie show with guest critic Kenneth Turan of the LA Times, where they just talk about the stuff that they saw at the Cannes Film Festival, like devoted to all these weird, obscure films. In fact, one, as I was skimming through the episode, trying to find what they had said about Ghost Dog, if they had given it uh, the thumbs. And uh, Kenneth Turan talks about some uh, movie, some black and white, I want to say it was Polish maybe, or Belgian film about a, a guy who's trying to become the, uh, his dad is pressuring him to become the door opening champion. I mean, they, they spent time talking about this on the show. It's kind of amazing what, what Ebert had on television back then. Hold on, hold on. I'm going to look that up right now. Ah, uh, Josh, of course you're talking about La, Les Convers Attendants. Yeah, which has also an English title, but <laughs> it's better when you mangle the French title. <laughs> um, so Ebert only gave a, a brief mention of Ghost Dog as one of the highlights of Cannes in that episode, and Kenneth Turan didn't talk about it. So there's no there's no thumb to uh, to quote here on on Ghost Dog, but Ebert did give it three out of four stars in his written review, uh, and he had kind of an interesting perspective on the concept of Ghost Dog. He said it helps to understand that the hero of Ghost Dog: The Way of the Samurai is crazy. I've seen Ghost Dog twice and admired it more after I focused on the hero's insanity. The first time I saw it at Cannes, I thought it was a little too precious, an exercise in ironic style, not substance. But look more deeply and you see the self-destructive impulse that guides Ghost Dog in the closing scenes as he sadly marches forth to practice his code in the face of people who only want to kill him. Whether he survives is not the point. Jarmusch seems to have directed with his tongue in his cheek, his hand over his heart, and his head in the clouds. The result is weirdly intriguing. And I don't know if uh, Ebert spends a lot of time in this review focusing on his sort of theory that Ghost Dog is uh, clinically insane. I'm not sure if that's the point here. I mean, he lives in a chicken or a, a pigeon coop above a apartment complex, and he's a modern day samurai. I think you could make that argument, you know. 
Um, well, you can, and, and Ebert does. Does he live in the chicken coop? I thought he lived in like a shack on top uh, of the on top of the pigeon with next to the pigeon coop. I think is it is it on there? Okay, yeah. I, yeah. I was I was slightly uh, confused by that. Well, Josh, insane or not, here's what fascinates me, and I know this has been a big point of a lot of the reviews is like Ghost Dog. Not really a good guy. He does a lot of the murders. He steals the cars. He does live by a code, so maybe he's only hurting the bad people or this or that. But like, he's a protagonist. You're like, man, he's not that good of a dude. But Forrest Whitaker plays him in such a lovely way. It's like you're drawn in and rooting for him the whole time. Like, it's amazing what Forrest Whitaker does here. And I know Jarmusch said that he wrote it for him. And if Whitaker didn't do it, they probably wouldn't have made the movie. He's just like, perfect as this character he is very good and i feel like that goes a long way toward making up for the fact that we essentially know nothing about this guy as a person i mean we learn nothing about his background other than this one particular fact that he was getting beat up by some dudes and louis the mobster came and saved him but other than that we know nothing about his upbringing we know nothing about really his personality or, or how he went from guy getting beat up, where obviously he did not have the skills necessary to take on these random thugs, to this ultra-efficient assassin, who not only lives by the code of the samurai, but is incredibly good at killing people and stealing cars and strategy and a whole bunch of stuff that we never learn how he uh, trained for. Also, uh, what a cool name. Like, what, how, did he, how did he get that name? So. Right. Well, as uh, as the mobsters discuss in this film, you know, it is perhaps uh, an homage to either rappers uh, or Native Americans who uh, are the same thing, according to some of these <laughs> super racist mobsters in this yeah. film. Yeah, these old these old time mobsters are definitely racist. Um, however, um, I mean, they're they're portrayed as that on purpose. So. Um, the racism isn't the funny part. The other stuff that they do is hilarious sometimes. They are quite ridiculous. And, you know, obviously racism isn't funny, but sort of the way that these mobsters are racist in this incredibly uh, clueless manner uh, yeah. and hypocritical as well uh, can can be amusing. Yeah, I mean, um, for as good as Ghost Dog is as a samurai, these guys are really bad mafiosos. They are quite bad. They are quite bad. Uh, so maybe Ghost Dog, yeah, maybe Ghost Dog isn't quite as skilled because these guys are so inept. It makes it easy for him to kill them all. Uh. So Marjorie Baumgarten in the Austin Chronicle was also sort of baffled but intrigued by this film. She said, Jim Jarmusch, the king of indie cool, strikes another blow against the empire with this new work about a contemporary hitman nicknamed Ghost Dog who is steeped in the code of the ancient Japanese samurai. It's a story about collisions and cohesions of cultures and languages, behaviors and customs. It's also a story that makes sense on some ethereal level, but not always on the practical plane. It's the kind of movie you wish you had more time to absorb and could see more than once before reviewing. For Jarmusch is like a jazz master on the movie screen, a Charlie Parker of the camera, who changes registers, tempos, and tones while never losing sight of his riff. Some chord progressions lead down blind alleys, but others lead to nirvana. And I'm sympathetic because I was sort of baffled by this film. Yeah, but that's part of the charm of it, I think. Um, 
Hey, uh, Charlie Parker, guess who played him in Bird? Forrest Whitaker. Good guess, Josh. Um, Thank you. But, or, or, or looking up things about Forrest Whitaker before we did this episode. Good looking up, Josh. Um, <laughs> Thank you. You know, the one thing that I think resonated with me in that review, and and I, I think it's fair to be baffled, is like, like when we talk about Jarmish, like not everything works, not everything's a home run, but it's always fascinating. He's always so interesting. And like you watch him because he is taking these chances and you're like, hey, well, that's different, you know, and like to me, Ghost Dog, it works great and some of his other ones, not as great, but like he's always so interesting, man. So I kind of admire that. Yeah, I kind of admire it, too, even though I feel like this movie included my reaction to every Jarmusch film I see is, huh, okay. <laughs> and I don't know that I necessarily enjoy the films, but I, I appreciate that they exist. And I, I felt that way about this one too, even though I was, I think I had slightly higher hopes because this is one of his most beloved films. And, and I know, Jason, I know that you liked it. I know Dave really liked it. And I was hoping that I would have a different response, um, but it was a similar response to, to other Jarmusch films. Uh, first of all, the fact that we don't have a social media, uh, um, you know, kind of handle where Josh can review movies in just three words that that's that's a mistake on our part there you know uh, <laughs> not even really three words more like three utterances. sounds yeah. yeah sounds i love this movie i i love it so um you know like i said i don't love all of his stuff i like a lot of his stuff but uh this movie i think he kind of made it for me josh <laughs> so you know <laughs> but not just me a lot of college kids on the east coast around this time you know and it's just like it's like all the things that I would want to see in a movie around this time are all kind of here almost. Yeah, I mean, that that makes perfect sense. And I think there there is uh, part of the big following of this film is is people people like you, Jason, who had that kind of the interest in the in the various mishmashed elements of pop culture that Jarmusch combines here in a way that really appealed to a, a certain kind of audience and and to more than just that. I mean, this is a critically acclaimed film that's only grown in reputation over the last 20 plus years, but certainly that audience that uh, was inclined to like it really, it really resonated with them. Um, one person it did not resonate with, however, was Wesley Morris in the San Francisco Examiner, who said, the film is a contemplative disrobing of a lifestyle, hip hop, in order to give it new clothes and an attempt to give the action genre pause to reconsider itself. But Jarmusch, with his noble sincerity and real affection, can't begin to give this grisly, somnambulant essay on the cross-cultural matrix of violence born of overstimulation and numbness a life of its own. Like the most enervated rap record ever made, Ghost Dog is made of samples, conscious attempts to mix and match seemingly disparate elements of hip-hop and mob culture until the source material becomes irrelevant. Or becomes harmonious. Yeah, clearly he did not think so. Uh, he felt like this mix of stuff did not work, or rather that it doesn't have its own unique identity, that it's just a mix of things. It's just references and homages and not its own thing. And I wasn't crazy about this film, but I don't necessarily, it definitely feels like its own thing. Also, I think, yeah, I think it works on in a few different levels, but also from 
I feel like he missed the idea of the commentary of these Italian mobsters and this modern day samurai are both living in a code that not only is outdated, but leads to nothing but death and pain for all of them. I mean, yes, that's true. But at the same time, I feel like the way the movie is set up and what you're talking earlier about Forrest Whitaker's performance is that Ghost Dog is likable and sympathetic. And so his living by a code is portrayed, I feel like, as as positive, whereas the mobsters are pathetic. But you're right that they're both living by these outdated codes that don't really make sense in the modern world or for them in their particular lives. I mean, the mobsters are also likable because they're so ridiculous talking about, you know, uh, how they love public enemy or, you know, just the old guy who barely chimes in and then, uh, you know, says something ridiculous or or when he sees ghost dog, when he comes for him at the end and he goes, it's in the bird, man. And then he has a heart attack and dies. It's just like, that's hilarious right there. So. What, what about in the very beginning when they're trying like really hard to write a note on the pigeon letter, you know, and, and it's too small and they're like, hey, hold the damn. Or they're trying to catch the pigeon. There's so many wonderful, like, and I mean, they don't have to be mobsters. They can be, you know, I think that's like the idea of like an older generation, but the yeah. fact that they are mobsters is, is very funny. I mean, they're amusing, but they're not sympathetic in the same way that Ghost Dog is. Again, like you were saying earlier, you root for Ghost Dog. Yeah, you want them to kill the mobsters. That's true. Right. And you don't root for the mobsters. You laugh at them and you want them to die. Right. But you're but they're fun to watch on screen. They are. But my point being is that they're they're sort of the codes that they're living by or their ways of of going through life are not portrayed as equally sort of outdated or or illegitimate. Okay. So Jason, I'm guessing by your uh, mentions of this movie being made for, you know, your demographic or whatever that you saw this uh, when it came out. Yeah, I think I saw it. It must have probably been on DVD when I was in college, right? And just the title alone, you're like, Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai. Like, yeah, you got you to gotta watch that. And I remember watching it and being like, yeah, that's good. And then I haven't watched it since. And uh, I just had such a great time watching it this time. I, I really like just it was, you know, in the same way that I, when we've covered like Slapshot or something, just how you can just sink your teeth into it and enjoy it. That's how I felt about it. All right. Yeah, I had not seen it. I don't know. Um, I mean, I assume maybe you and I talked about it back then in college. And I, I'm, I'm trying to remember if uh, other friends of mine at that time had seen it and liked it, because it does seem like the kind of thing that would be for people that I knew or, you know, even or for me as well. I mean, I was never, I was never a hip hop fan, but I certainly am a movie fan and uh, intrigued by uh, martial arts and samurai films, but I had never seen it uh, until yesterday. And like I said, I was hoping, you know, by that point, I knew how much you liked it. I knew how much Dave liked it. I knew it's critical reputation. And it just, again, I got to the end and I was like, all right, that was a thing. I didn't, it didn't really reach me in any way. I think that's okay. I mean, this is clearly not a movie for everyone. So, you know, stick to your yeah. uh, happy-go-lucky Rosetta and move on with your life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like, I need to really uh, have a good time. So I'm going to rewatch Rosetta. Um, so Dave, you're a big fan of this one as well. Did you see it when it came out? I saw this in the theater. Wow. Yeah, and I, I don't think I knew who Jim Jarmusch was at the time, but... I was a hardcore Wu-Tang 
fan and hip hop head all around, especially New York hip hop. And so somehow or another, and maybe like the source or something, you know, some <laughs> hip hop related thing told me that there was this Wu-Tang movie coming out, you know, that the RZA had something to do with. And so, yeah, I went to see it and just absolutely loved it. And I was actually thinking about this um, in this season of 1999. I, I mentioned that story about how I've felt like American Beauty was probably my entryway into like heavier, darker kind of movies. I feel like this was my entryway into weird movies. <laughs> I, I think that might not be, you might not be the only one because like your story there, people who were into hip hop, Wu-Tang Clan was hugely popular. Uh, they might've seen that, hey, the RZA worked on the music for this film. I'm going to go check it out. And this is not what you would expect necessarily of a movie like made by or featuring rappers. Um, yeah. It's much weirder. Uh, although uh, in his in his review, Wesley Morris did compare it to uh, Jason. I know you know this movie, the one that starred the Fat Boys, Disorderly. Yeah, Disorderly. That is so out of place and ridiculous <laughs> to say that. Um, I can't even wrap my head around that. Also, this fits Wu Tang perfectly because that you know, Enter the Thirty Six Chambers are huge martial arts film fans, and you know, yeah. there's also the element of like this is a great movie for stoners, you know. <laughs> so like, mm -hmm. it, uh, and and you know, it's filmed in Jersey City. Uh, Wu Tang, of course, like Dave said, they're mostly Staten Island guys, right? But uh, you know, there's that whole element of the Northeast and. You know, the Wu-Tang Clan, the Mafia, you know, it's a t there's a lot of elements that fit here. And with that, uh, Josh, since we're talking about hip hop, I think we should turn it over to Jewish Dave to drop us a hot <laughs> verse from the Wu-Tang. Give us your favorite Wu-Tang verse, Dave. Not going to do it. But I will say, though, <laughs> when those dudes are all freestyling to the ice cream beat in the park, that was that was just great. Did you did you know, like I, I was looking in the credits and those guys are clearly all rappers because they all have ridiculous rap names. Are yeah. were you familiar with any of those guys? I think so. Honestly, 41 year old Dave doesn't remember which one is which. But back in the day, I knew I'm sure I knew every single one of they them. Were, and I was like, oh, my yeah. God, they got him. They you were know? not like, like made men like the Wu-Tang, but they were part of the syndicate. Right. So, they were, yeah, the Wu affiliate. Yeah. The Killer Bees. The Killer Bees, Josh. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, this is all this is all beyond me. I did recognize the RZA when he did his cameo. I love that. I love that part. So can I just say, like, <laughs> one of my favorite, like, weird little things of this movie is like you had mentioned that when the gangsters first hear about him, they're like, ghost dog. What is that? You know, and they like they're so confused. They don't know how to track him down. Like he's this like kind of shadow, this phantom. But everyone in the neighborhood just knows him and he's there for them. Like, what up, ghost dog? Like, he's just part of it, you know? And they like just like accept that he's part of the neighborhood, but the gangsters are so confused by this whole thing. I love that element of it. Right. Well, these gangsters obviously, I mean, they're powerful enough to track down Ghost Dog eventually, I guess, but they're they're really pathetic. The one one detail I did love in this movie about is how the gangsters the mobsters are broke. Yeah. Like they're they behind they on the rent. Yeah. They can't pay the rent on their like back room of a Chinese restaurant where they meet. And every time, both times ghost dog goes to like the, the big estate that's in the country. And then he also goes to one, uh, sort of house in the city and both of those are for sale yeah they have for sale signs <laughs> that is true that is true so. i did appreciate that little but, i mean and, and those are like like you're saying little details he doesn't like hang the lantern on it they're just there for like delicious little morsels for you you know mm -hmm. yeah 
So uh, anything else you want to mention on the background of this film, Jason? Well, we should talk about Josh. Um, two of the movies that keep coming up, and I, I watched Le Samurai yesterday, the Jean-Pierre Melville movie. Uh, that and uh, Seijin Suzuki's Branded to Kill. Two movies from 1967, highly influential on here. And I, like I said, I watched Le Samurai, um, and you can see a lot of, uh, let's say, homages to it. And I know the killing of uh, the gangster through the pipe, which is just such a great uh, killing, is is right out of Branded to Kill as well. Yeah, I, maybe we can do a, a bonus 1967 episode on both of those together or something someday. But I have not seen them. I would love to see both of those. I've seen a couple other Jean-Pierre Melville films, um, and he's very good at that kind of gangster cool style. He was a huge influence on the French New Wave. So I would definitely like to see the samurai. Yeah. I mean, obviously we talked about it for our 1967 season. We didn't watch it, but I will say this watching that made me want to watch more of his movies. So that's always a great sign. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll come back then in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on ghost dog, the way of the samurai. Welcome back to awesome movie year in this episode of our special 10th retrospective season. We are returning to 1999 to talk about Jim Jarmusch's cult classic, Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai. And like I said, this, this kind of didn't do it for me. So, so Jason, uh, why don't you uh, tell us what's great about this film? Yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of things. We've already kind of talked about tonally that I think all those mismatch elements work um, really well. I think this is one of Jarmusch's best shot movies. Um, I love the soundtrack. I think the, the RZA, you know, we know what the RZA can do as a soundtrack guy, but I think this was like probably the, the jumping out party, the coming out party for him for that. Yeah. I just, it just all worked. I, I liked, I liked the structure of it where you would be reading these passages from samurai script and how it would lead into the next section of the movie. And I liked the revenge aspect of it. Like ghost dog does a hit. And then the mafia is like, well, we have to take him out because someone was there who shouldn't have been there. So then it becomes like him versus them. And like, it just flowed very cleanly for me. And, you know, Josh, like it's it's weird now because you see like all these old gangsters and you're like, they're cartoons and everything. But I mean, I grew up around people like that. You know, this was Jersey City. I didn't grow up in a mafia family. I grew up in a very mixed neighborhood, like I said, but. There were definitely, you know, you'd go to the airport and you'd be standing next to guys like that and everything. And so I think that kind of um, breed of of uh, mafioso has maybe died out. And it's fun to kind of see the the remnants of it in something like this, where they're already showing it as a as a kind of uh, a class that won't be there for much longer. So just all those things for me. And like I like we said, Forrest Whitaker is, is great. So I, I really liked it. I like just almost everything about this movie. Yeah, Forrest Whitaker is great. And it's such a ridiculous character that, like you said, I think, you know, may, obviously even Jim Jarmusch felt like not, not anyone else could have done it. And uh, it's tough to make that character, make him sympathetic and make him not just laughable. And that we, we really care about him as a person, even though we don't really know very much about him. Um, but especially when he's in danger or he's going to like sacrifice himself. Um, we feel, we do feel kind of emotional about that. I mean, I felt more like 
he clings to this code that no one else cares about to his own detriment for reasons that we never really learn. And that was a little like, uh, I, I, I lost a little sort of sympathy for him there. But as a person, you can tell that he's kind of soulful and sensitive and you, you, you don't want him to be killed. Yeah. Um, I, I can see you wanting that background. I guess I just liked it so much. I didn't care because I just went for the ride. But there's definitely a overall sadness to that character, right? Like, if we are to infer that the reason he became a samurai was because of that horrendous beating he took where he was almost murdered, that's sad. His best friend is a man who doesn't speak the same language as him, right? He lives by a code that no one else seems to live by. Although, in the streets, he's respected, right? You know, what a ghost dog. Uh, And then, you know... (laughs) His like his other compadre is is a little girl, you know. So um, there's a lot of uh, just weird things going on with the ghost dog. There are, but I mean, I don't necessarily think all of those things are sad. I mean, the relationship that he has with his best friend, the Raymond Haitian, yeah, yeah. Raymond, the uh, the ice cream man who only speaks French, uh, played by Isaac de Bancole, Um is a really sweet relationship. It's not like, oh, how sad it is that they can't communicate with each other. They can communicate. And one of the other sort of amusing things about this movie is that when they're talking, even though they can't understand each other, they're often saying the same thing. Right. You know, Raymond will say, oh, I guess you've got to, uh, you're busy right now and you got to go take care of some stuff. And then Ghost Dog says, I'm busy right now and I have to go take care of some stuff. And even though they can't communicate, they they clearly are on like a, the same wavelength. And and the same goes for his friendship with the little girl, Perlene. Um, they can communicate, but it's it's a sweet relationship. It's not a like pathetic that he's friends with this little girl. It's nice, and she looks up to him. I guess there's just a sadness that there's not a, another connection for him, is what I'm saying. True, and we don't know what happened like to his family, you know, where are his parents? Did he have siblings? Did he ever have, you know, romantic relationships or anything like that? We never, we never learn about that, but it's it's not hard to imagine that there's some kind of tragedy in Ghost Dog's past that maybe has driven him to become this ridiculous uh, samurai figure, uh, including one of the th- one of the things that really did not that I felt like even Forrest Whitaker could not sell is the way that he kind of twirls his guns as if they're swords when he brings them in and out of his holsters. And I just thought that looked incredibly sad. I didn't mind. But that's that. a very small. But I love I love. Yeah. Speaking of uh, the, the the guns. That last sequence where he goes to that estate in the country and he takes out most of the mobsters, that's a really thrilling sequence. I guess. I felt like, first, like as amusing as the mobsters are, I didn't feel like any of them were distinctive to the point where I couldn't remember. Like He goes to that big house and he takes out, as you say, most of the mobsters. And then clearly, plot-wise, there's more movie. And I was like, okay, he must have more mobsters to kill but I don't remember which ones are which. And so I don't know which mobsters are left for him to kill. Yeah. So I felt like that the mobsters, like as people were just kind of like a bunch of interchangeable old white dudes, except for his one, like benefactor, Louis, Louis, who he, he spends most of the movie trying not to kill until their final showdown at the end. Well, Um, he tries not, he doesn't kill him there either. You're saying Louis. That's true. But, but but he I I it, it feels like he almost would have killed Louis at the end. I feel the opposite. I feel like he has 
not only accepted this fate, like he's almost dictated the fate. And this is how he yeah. wants to die because he has to because he believes in this code, which to me, I was like, no, ghost dog, you don't have to go out this way. <laughs> right. No, I felt the same way, too. That's, I think, the point where you're like, what are you even doing? Why? And since we never learn why the code of the samurai is important to him, it's there's no sense of the value to him of adhering to the code to the point of sacrificing himself to this idiot. It's it's interesting because I think that's a very fair criticism, but I guess just because the whole character was entrenched in it and the movie worked for me, I didn't mind that, you know, that we didn't find that that out. Um, but yeah, it is, it is a bit of a bummer that this is... Um, but it's also interesting that Louis, who's this mobster, right? And you, we just talked about how racist these other mobsters are would go and save Ghost Dog from being beaten by these white dudes right back in the day and everything, and just out of nowhere. He just says, I saw this guy getting beaten up, so I stopped it from happening. He killed one of his assailants, right? And um, and he's like, four years later, he tracked me down, and that's how our relationship started. But that's kind of an interesting shade to that character played by John Tournay, who, who was quite good. Yeah, and I guess, yeah, Louis is the, the least racist mobster or the only non-racist mobster, I guess. Yeah, you know, he's trying to explain. That scene is so funny where they're like, we got to kill this guy. Who is he? And they try to explain who he tries to explain who Ghost Dog is. And these mobsters are just so confused. And like that one old guy who barely ever talks, who looks like Corrado Jr. Soprano is just like, uh, Passenger pigeon stopped in 1914, you know? So <laughs> I thought, I just thought that scene was hilarious. And then Henry Silva, who played Ray Vargo, who's so serious and just talks like, you know, he's so serious about everything. I've met men like that too. And it's, there's such an element of machismo to them. And it's like, bro, just take a beat here, you know? I thought that was, I don't know, man. It just all worked for me. Yeah. Um, well, going back, I mean, what I was, try was trying to say about that sequence where he goes to the big estate and kills them all, it's like, he's so good at killing them that there's no suspense to that. He just goes in and kills them all. He's very casual about it. Once again, lets uh, the young woman, the daughter of, uh, of the big mob boss, lets her live. That was sort of uh, what happened to get him in the situation in the first place is that she was there when she wasn't supposed to be there at the hit that he was hired to do. And of course, we learn at the very end that letting her live was a mistake because she takes over as the boss, whereas he thought Louis would. And maybe theoretically, if Louis had taken over as the boss, he would have spared Ghost Dog's life. But he's still under the thumb of someone else. Even though I wondered by that point, is the daughter and Louis like, the only people left in the whole mob? Like, what even is there? I mean, point? even if that's the case, that's like you said, Louis spent all movie trying to make sure that Ghost Dog doesn't get killed, arguing that he doesn't. And then he lives by this code, too. So now he has to kill Ghost Dog, right? And Ghost Dog kind of like walks into it knowing that's what has to be done. And it's, it's a very um, meaningless, vicious cycle. Right. Although I think what I'm saying is I got the sense that, you know, Ghost Dog lives by his code, even though that means he dies for no reason, right? But that Louis, if it weren't for the fact that he still has this boss, would be willing to forego the code and let Ghost Dog go because he likes yeah. Ghost Dog and doesn't want to kill him. That's true. So Ghost Dog's mistake there is not killing the young woman. Who he didn't know he was going to have to kill. 
anyway. I'm saying between that and we have the scene earlier, right, where Louis is trying to save the one other mobster and they're driving, trying to get to a hospital and they get stopped by a cop. Well, that seems wild cop, too. And, and uh, the other mobster kills the woman cop and Louis is outraged. You killed a broad. And uh, his point, the other guy's point is like, well, if they want to be equal, she was a cop, you know? And I feel like between that and the fact that Ghost Dog, by uh, overlooking this person because she was a woman, uh, made a mistake, that the moral of this film is you got to kill the ladies. You got to you got to yeah. murder everyone equally, not the ladies, Josh, everyone, everyone. equally. OK, it's yeah. an equal it's an equal opportunity murder thing. I, right. I think you were close to figuring it out there, Josh. Okay. You were closer than you might have thought. That see that is very funny as that guy's dying while he talks about, you know, they want to be equal, but now she's equal, you know, that type of thing. But yeah, uh, you make a fair point. You know, why didn't he take out Ray Vargo's daughter? I I don't know. That's just something we'll never know from the ghost dog. Well, I mean, I think it's because it's part of his code. In the in the initial part, it's because he's been hired to kill this one person and he's not gonna kill anyone that he hasn't been ordered to kill. Right. And then I guess maybe in the the later scene where he just goes and kills everyone, he still does see her as not a threat or she's not pointing a gun at him, you know? So if she's unarmed, he's not going to kill her. Every one of these other mobsters is there trying actively to shoot him. And so he kills them first. So it may be as part of his code. It's interesting because she doesn't seem to have a great relationship with her father, but obviously now she's living by this code too. That That is true. I feel like a lot of this plays out in a way where it's almost like we're witnessing something that will become stories that are going to be passed around in, you know, in the hood, basically, where, you know, people are going to talk about Ghost Dog and the positive impact, like the way he lived by a code and how positive a thing that is, even if not all the pieces kind of line up in a story sense. Well, I mean, you know, Dave, you are from the hood, so you would I, know you would know you the know thinking. It. There is a sense. I mean, I think that that especially with all those samurai, the the quotes from like the samurai handbook or whatever it is, which also to me, virtually none of those made any sense. Um, but I realized that Jarmish didn't make them up. They're from an actual book uh, from the samurai era in Japan. But um, there is the sense of this movie being sort of like mythology. Um, right. So I think I think you're right about that. And these are like archetypal characters. And we have the the legacy there, you know, the end of the movie is that Ray Vargo's daughter has taken over the mob and she's, you know, carrying on her father's legacy. And then we see Perlene, the young girl who was friends with Ghost Dog, and he passed along the samurai handbook or whatever it is to her. And there she is at home in her kitchen reading it. And um, I don't know if Charmish has ever talked about this, but I definitely thought about Kill Bill and yes. what Tarantino has yep. talked about. And, you know, are we going to have Ghost Dog 2 someday now that Perlene is an adult and she's going to go take on the mob again or something? But I don't think Jarmish doesn't seem like the kind of guy. I don't think he's ever made a sequel to anything. And I don't think he's ever mentioned that. I was thinking the exact same thing. Like, I would love to see her go and avenge Ghost Dog um, when she's older, not as a nine year old. That would be not the best. Right. But of course, now, you know, 20 plus years later, this would be the time, you know, just like we're talking about the Kill Bill sequel, potentially, yeah. uh, this would be the time to do it. But I, as far as I know, Jarmish has never mentioned anything about that. So, mm. Dave, do you mm. want to? 
Dave, do you want to say anything else? I know you love this movie so much. Anything else you love about it that you want to talk about? I mean, the only other thing, because you guys did cover a lot of it. I mean, a lot of what Jason was talking about is exactly how I feel about just how great this is and how it just spoke to me. So, so many of my interests kind of coming together into one thing, you know, but uh, I'll just add a couple notes on that soundtrack, which the RZA is just awesome for this kind of thing. He's a very specific kind of composer, obviously coming from that background of just being obsessed with, you know, all the martial arts films and then from a hip hop background. Uh, but this is probably the best work he's done as a, as a soundtrack composer. And then the uh, songs, the soundtrack itself that he put together I I will go on record as saying is the last great Wu-Tang like album, um, you know, as like a compilation, of course, but like that really captured that original Wu-Tang sound. This was it. And there's plenty of great Wu-Tang that's come since like great songs individually. But as far as a cohesive album, which was that first like six, seven years of all of their output was just freaking perfect. This was like kind of the last one in that series, I'd say. Mm. I thought also, Dave, on top of that, the use of other songs, like when there's the Armageddon time montage, mm. like I like that song because I'm a Clash fan anyway, sure. but this was the original kind of reggae version. And then obviously Cold Lamp and with Flavor, the Flavor, you know, the Public Enemy stuff. I I love the soundtrack here. Yeah, yeah, it's clearly impressive. I mean, like I've said, I, I'm not, you know, a hip hop fan, so a lot of it's probably lost on me, but I, it, it's definitely, it feels right for what Jarmusch is trying to do. Um, so uh, it creates a mood. It's an effective mood. It does. Yeah. It does. It creates a mood that I was just never on board with, I guess. Well, Josh, that's why I'm trying to get Dave to rap for you right now to just throw out some of that classic Wu-Tang right now, you know, maybe some cream or something like that, Dave. I'll add in post. I don't think that's going to help really. <laughs> So uh, should we should we rate this one out of five uh, ice carrier cones? pigeons? Carrier yeah. pigeons. Carrier that pigeons, makes more yeah. sense. Yeah, four carrier pigeons for me. I love this movie. I will be happy to watch it again. What up, <laughs> Ghost Dog? <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna give it. I'm giving it two and a half carrier pigeons. It just didn't. I can respect that it exists, but I didn't particularly enjoy or get drawn into it. Much like most Jarmusch films for me, so I'm I'm just not I'm just not feeling this one. So you're Dave, a you're a real Bosley Crowther on this one. <laughs> I am. I think Bosley Crowther might have been dead by 1999, but yeah, we'll go with that. Dave, how would you rate this? All the way to five, guys. Absolutely. And by by the way, it was almost my Dave's pick for 99. Yeah, I think Dave that this is the second movie this season that you have yeah. given five five stars to. We're on a roll. This is guys. Cinema Paradiso. What was yeah. your ninety nine pick? What did you uh, pick in ninety nine? It was Office it, Space. Office think, Space, right? which yeah. was also yeah, that's a great star. one too. Dave, yeah. Dave really is hitting in ninety nine. Josh, also a like, hip hop uh, influenced film. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, that's true. Josh, let's come back and talk about the legacy here. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our special retrospective season, we are returning to 1999 to talk about Jim Jarmusch's future cult classic, Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai. 
And legacy-wise here, of course, this is a cult classic. This is a movie that was, it was very well regarded at the time that it came out, as we talked about by most critics, but it certainly has grown in influence and in respect. Uh, we, I think all of us watched this movie on the Criterion channel and Criterion has released a very, you know, extensively bonus packed edition of this film. So it's, you know, been added sort of to the canon as far as they're concerned. And it's, I, I think, you know, maybe Dave, you can speak to this better, but I feel like this movie, it was influenced by hip hop culture and then it's become influential on hip hop culture. Oh, I would say so. But I, I think it's also kind of hard to separate Wu-Tang in general's influence on hip hop culture, which this is kind of wrapped up in so well. Josh, you mentioned Kill Bill, which came out a few years later. There's clearly an influence on Kill Bill here, too. Yeah, oh, yeah, I think so. And I mean, to me, I feel like Tarantino is better at this kind of thing where he takes all these uh, pop culture elements and melds them into his own unique uh, perspective. Um, and I think I probably enjoyed the Kill Bill movies more than I enjoyed this, although I haven't seen either of those since they first came out. Um, but But yeah, obviously, this would have been an influence. And I'm sure... Tarantino was a big Jarmish fan and is is Jarmish's early films are something that Tarantino would have watched in his, you know, formative days when he was working in the video store and that kind of thing. And so Josh, you have seen a lot more of the the more current Jarmish films than I have and I've seen a lot more of the early ones than you have. What what's your favorite uh be, I mean, for me I would say Ghost Dog is my favorite. So what's your favorite that you've seen? Yeah, I mean, I've seen not a ton. I think this is the fifth or sixth Jarmish film that I've seen. Um, and and like I was saying earlier, my reaction to most of his films is just kind of befuddlement. Um, I do like I do like Patterson uh, a lot, which weirdly has some similarities to Ghost Dog, uh, where it's this this sort of lone figure, Adam Driver, who is not a samurai but is a uh, poet and bus driver. But Adam Driver played by Forrest Whitaker. <laughs> that would be a, a weird, a weird thing to do. Uh, no, Adam Driver is very good in that film. And it's also this, this sort of like meditative journey through this person's life. But I feel like because that movie is not there, like it's, it's not really anything. It's just a guy who drives a bus and writes some poems and hangs out with his wife. Um, it's not a genre thing. I feel like it kind of works, but he also like befriends a random young kid. I think maybe it's a young girl in a park when he's sitting on a bench and there's a lot of uh, parallels, but that's the one Jarmish movie where I came out of it thinking like, oh, I really, I really liked that. I really felt like that spoke to me in some way. But Jarmish has this thing that he does a lot. And this movie is a good example of it where he takes his sort of laconic uh, you know, meditative style and applies it to genre films, whether it's the mobster samurai thing here, or it's vampires in Only Lovers Left Alive, or it's a Western in Dead Man, or it's uh, zombies in The Dead Don't Die. And uh, I don't know if that always particularly works, but that is a thing that he does. Yeah. I mean, I just watched Down by Law the other day, which, um, is, you know, you could compare it maybe to like something like, oh, brother, where art thou? It's these guys end up in prison in the swamps of Louisiana and they, you know, have to figure a way out. And it's it's a very interesting movie because like I was telling you, it's a 
Tom Waits, John Lurie, and Roberto Benini sharing the screen, and your mind just can't really wrap your head around that. In that, like now, if you look back, you're like, "How did he know?" You know, it's like everything, like all right. But that was, um, and I, that was also shot. I think it was the first one that was shot by uh, Robbie Mueller, who we've of course talked about from Paris, Texas, who also shot Ghost Dog. And I mean, just the step up in cinematography when you have Mueller, who's you know a legend is pretty unique so um you know the their collaborations uh, many films and like i i know i had mentioned the cinematography when talking about this movie but we gotta you know give that dap to mueller there yeah i mean this this is a a beautiful looking film absolutely even if it uh it narratively uh left me cold it certainly looks amazing and as as we talked about with paris texas a movie that, that both of us were baffled by still uh amazing work from robbie mueller Hey, Josh, one other name that came up from uh, past awesome movie years, Richard Guay or Gay, the producer and Nancy Sokova's husband from 1989. Oh, from True Sundance. Love. Yeah. Yeah. So Nancy that's, Savoka. Oh, I switched two letters around. Oh, thank goodness she wasn't my wordle today. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, we, we got to yeah, give give respect to Nancy Savoka, who is an, uh, an underrated talent that we talked about in that episode on True Love. This is a rare, uh, a rare leading role for Forrest Whitaker. I mean, obviously, he's a, he's a star. He's been in, in tons and tons of movies, but usually he ends up being a supporting player. But he's a great actor, as we said. He's great in this film. He makes this film work because of his performances, Ghost Dog. And, you know, he's steadily in tons of movies. He eventually he won an Oscar for an, another of his fairly rare leading roles in The Last King of Scotland. And um, what a different performance, the power of that. You so, know? Yeah. yeah, he's a very versatile performer, and but always a very like intense actor, I think, yeah. is what he's known for. He's uh, he's currently the star of uh, another sort of gangland movie called Godfather of Harlem on Epics, which I've never seen, but I've read some good things about. Have you seen that? No, but he plays Bumpy Johnson, who we just talked about uh, when Lawrence Fishburne was playing the character based on him in The Cotton Club. Whitaker, an Oscar, a Golden Globe, a BAFTA, two SAG uh, wins, you know, iconic roles. Like you said, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Crying Game, Panic Room, Last King of Scotland. Rogue One, Black Panther, Godfather of Harlem, and two other things that we've recently talked about, Josh, he's going to be in that show Extrapolations, which we had mentioned is kind of like uh, a limited series on how people will live with the impending climate crisis. And he's also attached to Megalopolis, the Francis Ford Coppola movie. But I was also looking, Josh, some of the other stuff, George Tillman Jr.'s new movie, Heart of a Lion, based on George Foreman. He's I think he's playing George Foreman in that. So he's got some interesting projects coming up. Um, there's a movie, Gareth Evans' new movie on Netflix, who did The Raid um, with, I think it's him and Tom Hardy. Uh, the logline after a drug deal goes awry, a detective must fight his way through a criminal underworld to rescue a politician's estranged son while untangling his city's dark web of conspiracy and corruption. That's coming out this year on Netflix. Yeah, that all, all sounds like good stuff. And I feel like he's one of those actors too who has also been in a lot of bad stuff, but you know, he'll always be good even if you're watching something that's not good. If Forrest Whitaker shows up, he'll do something interesting and worthwhile in that maybe not so great movie or show. Um, and he is a senior research scholar at Rutgers University where he is one of the co-founders at the International Institute of Peace. 
He was made an African chief and he's, you know, studies martial arts. He's a very interesting human being. Yeah, that's some 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 kind of ghost dog like uh, characteristics that he has there <laughs> related to those. He directed things. Waiting to Exhale. Yeah, he's directed a few movies, and and weirdly, despite huh. his his being this intense dramatic actor, I think they're all like uh, light comedies, didn't he? Yeah, Ho- Hope Floats. I think also is that did he direct that as well? And then you're, they're female-led movies for the most part right, as well. Right, right, right. So yeah, he had a weird run of directing a few of those, but I think it's been quite a while since he's directed, although he may have worked in TV. It wouldn't surprise me if he's directed like maybe some episodes of that Godfather of Harlem show. So speaking of that, Josh, Isaac, uh, pronounce his last name for me, please. Uh, Isaac, Isaac. Uh, de Bancole, I believe. Yeah. I may be mispronouncing it. He reunited with uh, Whitaker on Godfather of Harlem and in I think he's in the new Black Panther and maybe was in the other one as well uh, the first one and he's done about four or five Jarmish movies including he was the star of Limits of Control Night on Earth Cigarettes and Coffees in that one so you know he's a he's a known collaborator for these gents yeah he's clearly a Jarmish favorite and that makes sense because he's kind of a, a quirky actor and you can see how he and Jarmish would uh, would vibe there um we have all these uh character actors playing the mobsters who are all for me at least were all people that I had never heard of and then I went and looked them up and they all have like dozens and dozens of credits uh <laughs> although a lot of them this was sort of the the end of their careers uh Henry Silva who plays that head mobster um this was the second to last movie that he was in uh and the basically the last real part that he played he had a cameo in Ocean's 11 a couple years later um, because he had been in the original Ocean's Eleven in 1960. Um, but pretty much after this movie, he retired and remains retired. Cliff Gorman, who plays the, I guess, the- Sonny Valero. Yeah, the second most important mobster, the one who enjoys yeah, Public the, Enemy. The uh, underboss. He also, this was basically, uh, you know, more or less the end of his career. He was only in a couple more movies. So Jarmusch clearly looking back to these uh, veteran character actors and picking them out where maybe they had not really been doing much. Uh, John Torme, uh, who plays Louis, uh, also he continues to work, but nothing. This is probably the most high, high profile thing he's done in the last 20 years. So, yeah, but I mean, like you said, like uh, Silva especially has like a long career of, uh, you know, maybe some of the more of these like hard boiled B movie types, but all these guys, New York actors, right? So uh, you mentioned Cliff Gorman. He won an Obie Award for the boys in the band. So I'm wondering, like, how many of these guys he's seen on stage, you know, before. And then we've talked about, like, how a lot of these guys end up in, like, The Sopranos or Law and Order. They pick a lot of the New York theater actors. And so I think that was a lot of a lot of this as well, Josh. Yeah, I mean, and it shows that Jarmusch has really, like, the eye for these lesser known guys who are going to be perfect for the roles of, of exactly what he's trying to do in this film. John Torney was in Dave's pick the 10. Oh, wow. I did wow. not. Uh, I somehow missed that. So I got to watch it again so I could see who he was. And uh, <laughs> Trisha Vesey, who plays uh, the daughter, Louise Vargo, has a child with Anton Newcomb from the Brian Jonestown massacre. That is a thing. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, we talked about the potential Kill Bill style sequel to this. Camille Winbush, who plays Perlene, the young girl. Uh, she's still working. I mean, she's uh, very successful. Yeah, she's a, a successful voice actor and has done a lot of TV. 
So I have a feeling, you know, if Jar Jim Jarmusch came to her and said, I want you to star in Ghost Dog 2, I feel like she would be up for it. She played Vanessa in the Bernie Mac show, won three NAACP Image Awards for supporting actress in a comedy series, and won a leading actress for the Young Artist Awards. So she's done great for herself. Yeah, and I saw, I can't remember, I think it was maybe it was on Letterboxd or in, in a review somewhere, uh, someone speculating that if they made that movie, they should get uh, Lupita Nyong'o to star as the adult Perlene. And obviously Lupita Nyong'o, great actress, would do a great job, but wh why push out poor Camille Winbush there? Let her do it. Give her a yeah, chance. Yeah, I agree with you, Josh. Thank you. I Again, as far as I know, this is not happening and Jim Jarmusch has never mentioned it, but we're going to make it happen. And the one last legacy thing I wanted to mention was the RZA went from this and eventually made his own very martial arts influenced film that he directed, wrote and directed called The Man with the Iron Fists, which I've never seen, but I'm imagining has some similarities. Dave, have you seen that? Yeah, it's pretty fun. It's it's very, you know, B-movie, but uh, it's got its moments for sure. Jason, did you ever see that one? Where does Bond? No, I didn't. All right. Neither <laughs> did I, but it has its following and it had it had a sequel as well. Well, that is Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can uh, check us out on uh, social media and follow our code. You can, Josh. And we are very strict about it, Josh. If we ask you to murder someone, we expect you to murder that person and that person only. Uh, we're at uh, awesomemovieyear.com uh, as a website. We're at Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. We're at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. I'm Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram. J Harris comedy on Twitter and like an ancient code that no one lives by anymore. Go for Jason as a website. Uh, you can find some of my ancient writings at joshbellhateseverything.com, including a couple of very uh, old things that I wrote about how I'm baffled by Jim Jarmusch movies. I'm at Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And check out our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And I guess you can find some slamming beats at ByDavidRosen.com. Oh, yeah. Where, where can we hear Dave? Where can we hear your rap music? N nobody needs to hear that. No. But if what if follow, I drop follow... you a beat right now? Yeah, no, just click on various buttons. You'll eventually find it. All right. So, uh, Jason, what do we have in our next episode? Josh, are we going to the audience choice next? Are we giving yes. the kids, the people, a pick? Yes. Well, Josh, it was another heated battle. Uh, this time, we said, audience, you uh, you know all these years we've covered. Which year do you want us to pick uh, another movie from? And they picked that year, Josh. And next episode, we will be doing a movie from the year that the audience picked out of all the years that we covered that we gave them a chance to pick from. It's the audience choice episode from a year of your choosing. Awesome movie year, audience choice year. Do we want he to say know what, it, what it actually is? He has is? no clue. <laughs> or do you want to just tease it like that? Because it's we know. Not, do you want me to say it? I can say it. I, I so. think we want to say it. It doesn't have to oh, be. Oh, the movie too? The movie yeah, as well? Right? Yeah, okay. you think so? I think, I think yeah, so. We yeah. usually do The that. year that won is 1994, our first season where we had an audience and the audience choice from 1994, which was a season of awesome movie year that we chose for our audience from the audience vote is the Shawshank Redemption.
So if you understood all that, <laughs> tune in next we're time. Co- we're going to do an episode on Shawshank Redemption next week. Tune in next time for the Shawshank Redemption. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.